Tonight's case is going to be spanning across two different states, Utah and Idaho. And I do want to give you a heads up that this does involve an underage minor. It, it is a horrendous case, and there are three victims, so there's quite a lot of people involved. It took me a long time to research this case because this story really goes back to the 80s. So I did a lot of Facebook research to get an idea of who these victims were. Some victims had more information than others. It was really hard to group everything into one story that made sense. And I also want to let you know that I I did have an interesting experience in a Target, and I'll talk about that story after the case. It's really, um, how do I describe this? It's really unnerving, and I've never been in this type of situation before. So I actually had to get somebody's advice before I went forward. So stay tuned for that. Mike Bollinger was a dimpled young man when Jackie Garcia's beauty caught his eyes in 1970. They were both freshmen at Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho. This college is now known as Brigham Young University, Idaho. Bullinger was a fellow Latter-day Saints member and served his mission in Manila in 1976. He married Jackie at the Salt Lake City LDS Temple in 1978. Their 10-year marriage was not a happy one, and Mike was described as selfish, dishonest, violent, and sociopathic, and this ultimately led to Jackie to fear for her life. Jackie said in an interview reported by the Idaho Statesman that, quote, you could catch him red-handed. God could be pointing at him, and he'd still lie all over the place, end quote. Jackie sought help from the LDS Church in Billings, Montana, because Mike had been hitting her during their arguments. She honestly did the best that she could in her situation. She sought couples counseling, therapy, and even help from Mike's family. But it seemed like no one could believe that Mike could do such a thing and be so violent. One of their two children later told Jackie that his dad had abused him at least on one occasion. Mike had cheated, he lied, abused, and manipulated through his first marriage. After his marriage to Jackie ended in 1988, he married his second wife. I couldn't gather any information on his second wife, and Jackie's the only one that can give any information about Mike's marital history. His second marriage was to the woman he had an affair with while married to Jackie. According to Jackie, his second marriage was an abusive repeat of theirs. To no one's surprise, that second marriage ended as well, and he later married his third wife, Cheryl Baker. Mike was a serial cheater, and Cheryl was the mistress he had while married to his second wife, and his second wife was the mistress that he had while married to Jackie. From gathering info on Cheryl and discovering how kind and caring she was, I don't think she had any idea that she was a mistress, and the same could be said about his second wife. Before I get into the marriage between Mike and Cheryl, I wanted to back up and talk about Cheryl's background. Cheryl Baker was born on September 6, 1960, in Detroit, Michigan, to Harold Leroy and Doris Marguerite Baker. Both her parents were teachers, so it was no surprise that Cheryl would follow in their footsteps. Cheryl had two brothers, Byron, Lyle, and a little sister, Joy. When Cheryl got older, she rode in a Michigan statewide bicycle tour with her father and made it a family tradition. 
Some of Cheryl's experiences growing up included swimming with dolphins in the Bahamas, swimming with turtles in Florida, rafting the Grand Canyon, summer trips in India, and a cruise to Alaska. Cheryl was a lifeguard as a teenager, and based on her experiences, she loved water. I can imagine that moving from Michigan to Utah after college was not difficult for her, and she quickly made friends. While in Utah, her lifeguard training helped in various situations, such as saving a drowning puppy from a river and performing CPR on a coworker until the paramedics arrived. After graduating college in 1984, Cheryl started working for the Utah Schools for the Deaf and the Blind. During those years of teaching, Cheryl went back to college to get her master's degree in education. She later retired in 2016 to teach art at Greenwood Charter School in Huntsville, which is close to Ogden, Utah. I visited Utah in the summer back in 2004, and the landscape is beyond breathtaking. For those of you who don't know, Ogden is about 40 miles north of Salt Lake City, Utah. It's really easy to get around Utah, and there's hardly any heavy traffic, so 40 miles is a lot quicker than you would imagine. She had been working for the Utah Schools for the Deaf and the Blind when she met a contract pilot, Mike Bullinger, and they were on a plane headed for Alaska. His charming ways got her attention, and they later married in Park City, with this being Cheryl's first marriage. For the most part, they had a very happy and content marriage for 10 years despite their differences. There was no indication of abuse from Mike, and Cheryl seemed to be very happy with their marriage. Cheryl was very eclectic with hobbies like meditation and crochet. Mike, on the other hand, liked riding his motorcycle, shooting and collecting guns, and flying planes. Even though they had their differences, they both loved the outdoors and camping. Some other articles say that their marriage was six years, but a majority of the other articles say that it was ten. Either way, their relationship seemed to last as long as Mike's previous ones. Cheryl's colleague, Michelle Tanner, described her as a devoted teacher who would get her students what they needed to succeed, and even went the extra step to becoming president of the school's teachers' association for a few years. Another teacher at the school and a personal friend, Nancy Powers, recalls the happy marriage between Cheryl and Mike. Powers describes Cheryl as so creative and artistic that she made her own wedding dress and even sought help from Powers with hemming the dress the night before their wedding. Cheryl was also a practicing Hindu, and Mike had learned Sanskrit with her and took an interest in their faith practices. They were both members of the Sri Ganesha Temple in South Jordan, Utah. A lot of the information I got on Cheryl was from an investigation discovery show called In Pursuit with John Walsh, which aired this episode on February 20th of this year. In March of 2014, the couple purchased a farmhouse near Caldwell, Idaho, under Cheryl's name. The house was just eight miles away from the next woman that I'll get into shortly named Naja. Cheryl and Mike had plans to join the Valkyrie Riders Rally in Montana on June 26th, but that will never come to fruition. Naja Sassen was born on December 5th, 1969, in Germany. Not much is known of her time in Germany, but she had moved to the United States while her parents had stayed behind. Naja's life didn't seem to start until she became a mom, and a wonderful mother she would become. She married Todd Medley, and together they had Peyton in 2002 while living in Ogden, Utah. 
Todd and Naja worked together at a pet store until his untimely death in 2014 due to health complications. Naja was an extremely hard worker and very independent. After Todd's passing, she continued to work as a massage therapist to provide for Peyton and her many hobbies. A lot of my understanding of Naja and Peyton come from both their Facebook pages, which are still up and available for people to look at and comment on. I have to say that it's a little weird looking at their Facebook because they were so open about their lives, and I feel like I got to know them a little bit beyond the surface. It's actually really hard to read how wonderful these two people were knowing what happened to them now. Both mother and daughter loved horses, dogs, and really any animal in need that was lucky to cross their path. Peyton was a very gifted writer and excelled in school making the honors roll in middle school. Some of Peyton's writing were published in her school's yearbook, and she had a YouTube channel that highlighted the daily thoughts of a down-to-earth teen. I watched some of her YouTube videos, and she seemed like such a really sweet and funny, introspective young woman. She was very open in her videos, and she shared a lot of her emotions unfiltered. I saw a lot of Naja's personality in Peyton, and these similarities made their relationship very strong. Not the typical mother and daughter arguments that you see in the teenage years. Naja and Peyton joked frequently on Facebook, and Naja expressed her support and love for her daughter constantly. I think sometimes Peyton might have gotten a little embarrassed by how much her mom was outwardly devoted to her, but moms can't help it, and I'm sure Peyton knew that. In 2015, Naja met Mike at her job working as a massage therapist, and the two hit it off instantly. Mike's stability and charismatic personality drew Naja to start a relationship with him, not knowing that he was currently married. Mike told Naja that he had been divorced for 10 years and that he's a Mormon from Montana. I find their connection interesting because Naja was an outspoken atheist, so there must have been enough good things about Mike for her to overlook these differences. And I have a feeling that Mike also told Naja that he was a Mormon and not Hindu because she probably would have found that really interesting and would have wanted to attend temple with him. Mike wasn't a stupid guy, and he had gotten away with cheating in the past, so I think that what he told people was very thought out and meticulous. It wasn't long before Peyton was brought into the picture as a daughter figure for Mike, and the two went on various trips documented on Naja's and Peyton's Facebook. These activities included hiking, rodeos, concerts, sports games, etc. To friends and family, the three were happy and Mike spoiled Naja and Peyton lovingly. There are some videos on Facebook of Peyton and Mike. They were having fun, they were out hiking, and it just seems like looking at these videos, you would have no idea that Mike was a monster. There are no articles that definitely state why Cheryl decided to drive to the Idaho house around June 8th unannounced, but it's possible that she assumed something weird was going on, and maybe Mike's behavior led her to believe that he wasn't being entirely honest with her. The theory is that Cheryl went to the property and was met by Naja and Peyton. There were no disturbance calls by the neighbors on that day, so it may be possible that the two women could have had a civil conversation and trying to sort things out. I can only imagine that Naja and Cheryl were both equally shocked, since neither of them knew about the other. And maybe Peyton was able to convince Cheryl that Mike had been lying to everyone. 
No one knows if Mike was at home at the time Cheryl dropped by or if he came home to them all demanding answers from him. Whatever happened, Mike was caught and something set him off to do something unforgivable. Peyton's friend Sidney Call was one of the first people to know something wasn't right when Peyton had failed to respond to her text on June 6, 2017. The way that I see Peyton, she was very active on social media, and I assume that her being, you know, a, a young teenager, she probably texted a lot. And for her to not text her friend back after so many days was probably alarming, and that's what set the bells off. And Naja was also planning to drive to Ogden, Utah on June 9th because she was going to pick up her horses and then move them to the farmhouse property in Idaho, but she never showed up to do that. It was actually Sydney's mom who was the one that called the police for a welfare check on 216 South Sid Road on June 19, 2017. When officers arrived on the scene, they were met with a foul odor outside, which only got stronger as they moved closer to the shed. When they opened the door to the shed, they found three bodies covered with a blue tarp. The officers also noted that three dogs were found murdered and that these dogs were likely Naja's and Peyton's dogs that they had rescued. I'm not sure if the dogs were in the house or in the shed, but the dogs did have gunshot wounds. I don't understand what the purpose was for the dogs to die. Maybe they got aggressive with Mike, or maybe they were making too much noise. Surprisingly, there were no calls to the police about noise, no gunshots, or that anyone saw anything unusual. I find this weird because although it was a farmhouse, they still had neighbors all around them. So I'm going to assume that gunshots are very common in the area, and maybe to hear gunshots could mean that people are just target shooting. Mike liked guns, so maybe his neighbors knew he did this and didn't see it as out of the ordinary for his house during the daytime. Also, the Google Maps photos of the house, which were taken in October 2016, showed the front yard completely overgrown with walnut trees. It's so overgrown that you can't even see the house from the street. It doesn't even look like there's even a house on the property. So there is a lot of privacy that would allow Mike to get away with transporting bodies or having blood outside and not having it being seen by neighbors. The three victims were Cheryl, 56, Naja, 48, and Peyton, 14. 14. Each victim had an execution-style gunshot wound to the head, and officials estimated that the victims had been dead for more than a week when they were found. The responding officers to the scene described that the decomposition was so bad that the bodies were unrecognizable and that sex or race couldn't be determined at the time they were found. Police also could not find Mike anywhere, and so the search was called to find if he was also a victim or a suspect. I had some fact issues with this particular case because the timeline varies from one article to the next. I decided to piece together the timeline of events and I think I was able to get it as accurately as possible. On June 10th, Mike had breakfast in Nampa, Idaho. Then he drove his truck to Utah to pick up the Ford Focus that was being serviced by a mechanic and he left his truck in Utah after picking up the Focus. On June 11th, some articles say 12th, Mike was last seen on a camera recording in the Swan Valley area in Idaho, 
and again on a camera entering a Wyoming campground the next day. On July 12th, and again, this is where the timeline gets weird because we go from June 10th, 11th, and then articles say July 12th. So I think it might actually be June 12th. I'm not sure. Mike's Ford Focus was found abandoned in the Bridge Teton National Forest in a remote Wyoming campground. Canyon County Sheriff Kieran Donahue said in an interview with CBS2 News that he is 99% convinced that Mike Bollinger is deceased. He continued to say that the case is 100% solved. Not everyone agrees with this theory, however, that Mike is dead, and the idea of suicide is implausible to those who knew him. An interview done by the Idaho Statesman talked with a few people who knew Mike. A friend of Naja's named Christine Roppel was quoted saying, People have said he probably went out into the woods and shot himself. I think he's too egotistical for that. End quote. An anonymous person was also quoted saying, If you know about sociopaths, you know that they're unlikely to kill themselves. He would have had to have felt guilty, and he doesn't have a conscience. End quote. Police have received hundreds of tips over the years and have been able to follow all of them, but unfortunately none of them have led to the whereabouts of Mike Bollinger. Police received a tip on June 28th that he may have been spotted driving on Interstate 15 southbound near Salt Lake City, and another tip thought that they had spotted him near Pocatello. Police followed up with these tips but could not find a trail that led to a conclusive whereabouts. In July and August, many memorial events were held for Cheryl by the school that she worked at. Greenwood Elementary held a vigil and planted a maple tree in her honor on June 13th. The Utah School for the Deaf held a memorial service on August 10th. So many people were affected by the sudden death of these three amazing women, and their loved ones have a hard time healing from such a tragedy. Sydney Call was quoted saying, When I lost Peyton, it wasn't just losing a best friend. It was losing part of my family, and it was losing part of myself. I can't get her voice out of my head. End quote. Nancy Powers was quoted saying, Mike took my dear friend. You know I miss Cheryl. I can't call her. I can't see her at book club. And he took, he took all of that away. End quote. Mike's whereabouts are still unknown to this day. He's around six foot with gray hair and brown eyes. The last known weight of Mike Bollinger was 240 pounds, but this could have changed over time. Stress and being on the run can have massive changes to a person's original appearance. Mike may be using an alias, and since he can fly a plane, this is a possibility that he could have left the country. His car was found in the mountains, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't get out of the Bridge Teton National Forest without it. He easily could have hitched a ride out of the forest to the nearest town, and from there he could have either rented or bought either a car or a plane. To my knowledge, there was no financial paper trail that indicated that Mike withdrew money from a bank account, but he could have been the type of guy to keep his own personal bank account in his house with stashed cash to help live his double life. Mike is also a very, and I hate to say this, but he looks like a very normal guy. He could blend in with a crowd with ease. 
He has no real distinctive characteristics that would make him look twice if you passed him on the street. He does have a dimple in his chin, but besides that, he looks pretty average. I think his biggest distinguishing feature is that he can fly planes, and that's something that I would assume he would still be doing today if he was still alive. He definitely won't be flying large commercial planes, but he could be in an area far away on an island flying small propeller planes. He is assumed to be armed and dangerous, so if you think you see him, then please notify police and do not try to make contact with him. You can call 911 or you can call the number 208-454-7531. If you would like to stay anonymous, you can always call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. Today's case, I used a lot of resources online, and I used a lot of articles that were very well developed. So if you would like to see those sources, you can always go to the show notes to find that information. I know a lot of people are really big on Target, and I've never been really one of those people. So I was driving around, I saw Target, I needed to get something right away, so I stopped in. I don't even remember what I got, it was so basic, but I remember standing in the checkout line, and a guy behind me came up, put his stuff on the belt, and I looked at it, it was some sort of cleaning solution and like a soda (laughs) or something, and It was kind of quiet. I looked at him, made eye contact, and kind of smiled. I noticed something really odd about this guy, though. His eyes were jet black. Like, there was no iris. There was no color to them. They were pure black. And I know people say this about serial killers, so when you see it in person, it sends chills down your spine. And so I got really freaked out, and so I just kind of took out my phone to kind of, like, not interact with this guy and make it look like I was doing something busy but apparently that didn't work and he felt like he needed to ask me a question and he asked me he said I know this is going to sound really weird but do you know how to clean up blood and I was trying to keep my cool and I said um no I, I don't think so um you can always try you know basic soap and you could try some cleaning solution And I wanted to get more information from him. So I asked him, I said, well, what kind of material is the blood on? You know, is it on clothing? Is it on the floor? He said, no, it's in my car on the seat. I said, oh, okay. Um, Is it a lot of blood? And he goes, yeah, it's a lot. I'm freaking out. I'm trying not to show that I'm freaking out, but I just wanted to get myself out of that situation without him thinking that I'm tipped off or that I'm going to call the police on him. So I just casually try to end the conversation. I check out and he's still kind of talking to me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, try to keep the conversation going. Maybe it was really dumb of me, but He said it was on the seatbelt, you know, it was on the chair, and it was in the passenger side. And he even told me, like, the make and model of his car, which I find very interesting that he just felt like he needed to tell me this information. And so I walked out of the Target, and I tried to walk out there as quickly as I could because I was trying to get to a safe place where I could 
lock my car. I actually moved my car because I didn't want him coming out and seeing me in my car. So I quickly moved it to the other side of the parking lot. And I texted my sister and she's really into true crime as well. And I asked her, I said, this is what happened. I don't know what to do. Should I even call the police? Because I'm trying to think, is this guy messing with me? But I remembered those black eyes and he just seemed to be really off. And I remembered being in that moment and just taking everything in, noting his hair color, what shirt he was wearing, what pants he was wearing, how tall he was, how much he weighed, what line we were in. You know, I even memorized like what checkout line we were in and the time. So my sister texted me back and she just said in all caps, call the police. So I called 911 and I did report it and I told them, you know, this is what happened. I'm not sure if this is really something that's really important to you guys, but this is the interaction I had with this guy and he just seemed really off. And so I had already gone into a different store in the complex by that time because I was just really freaked out being in the parking lot and I wanted to be in a place where there were cameras and other people around. I go out of the store and there's police everywhere. They are scouring the parking lot trying to find this car. And being that this guy was so open with me, I had the make and model and the color of the car so they knew exactly what to look for. I think, unfortunately, he had left by that point because he was checking out by the time that I was leaving the store and he could have easily gotten in his car and drove away. So being that I'm not really a Target person, this definitely makes me someone that doesn't want to go to Target anymore. And I just want to let you guys know that um, if you're in a situation like this where somebody's really creeping you out, and ladies, I know this happens a lot to us, just try to get to a safe space. Try to not be so weird in that situation. I know it's really hard to do something like stay calm, but when people are like that, if they sense that you think they're weird, that might set them off. So just try to get to a safe space and try to get away from that person as safely as you can and do call 911. I know in a situation like that, I had asked my sister, but I think I should have just called right away. I shouldn't have waited because they could have probably found this guy. Who knows what had happened? I looked on the internet and I looked at the news to see if there's anyone missing or any murder investigations that are unsolved, and I couldn't find anything. So I'm really, really hoping this guy just had a weird situation where he got a lot of blood accidentally on his car with no harm to anyone and was able to clean it up a little bit. I don't know. Thank you so much for sticking it out until the end. I wrote this script myself. I did all the research, recording, editing. I did the intro song. If you have any suggestions how to make this show better, um, please let me know. You can email me at modernmurders at yahoo.com.